Please note, this episode contains some strong language. Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. Well, Jill Jackson, I've already learned quite a lot about you in this chat prior to recording. So I actually hurried along there to get us recording because, I mean, the gems, the, the actual gold dust that was coming out of our conversation there. I've already learned about Room on the Broom mm-hmm. and I've also learned that, you know, you could have an absolute you know, stellar career in voiceover uh, for children's books <laughs> like... Although I've not had any samples of these wonderful accents that you've been telling me about, so when we get there, but um, Jill Jackson, welcome to the Bra on the Brief. I was thought you were going to say welcome to the Room on the Brief, and I was like, <laughs> <laughs> <Go> on, <laughs> accents. <laughs> no, 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 I wouldn't put you in the spot. <laughs> not as early as that. I always do it. Uh, thank you, thank you for having me here. This is nice. Total pleasure. Uh, I will say that I am. Just discovering your wonderful music in more recent times, and okay. I'm like, where have I been? Well, where have you been? I know I'm late to the party. Your music is spectacular. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm late to the party. This is what I love about the Brown the Brave because I'm getting to meet lots of interesting, very, very talented people, and to sit down for a bit of time and just get to know you. And I was trying to think, like, you know, I was listening to your music over the last couple of days and stuff, and just um, trying to. F- the best question to kind of get this conversation going um we've been talking about stories prior mm-hmm. to recording is storytelling a huge aspect of your writing and your music it's the biggest aspect for me um is to get across actual stories um i've kind of i've done the days of you know being like a, an in-house writer type thing where you they're like oh we need a a love song, three minutes for radio, this, you know, we need a breakup song that, you know, and you're writing, like, you know, you get into writing sessions and they're like, right, let's write about a girl and a guy and um, he's been cheating and he's been doing this and, and you know, and it's just so cliched and everything. And, I, you know, I did used to write all those songs. It was all about melody, 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 you know. And um, the biggest turning point for me in writing was going to Nashville and sitting in the, um, the, in the round at the Blue Bird Cafe, which it's quite hard to, to get into because, you you know, most people have to go and do that queuing up thing. They queue up outside, they get a ticket if they're good enough and they come back and then they try again. If they get another ticket, they get to perform one song that night. Whereas I just contacted them and said, I'm coming over from Scotland. This is what I've done previously. I'd love to do the end of the round. And it just so happened that they said yes. I never thought for a second that that would happen, but I got to do end the round with three other writers and they were kind of like, oh, this is a song I wrote for Rascal Flats and this, this is a song I wrote for Garth Brooks. And I was like, oh, this is a song I wrote for me. But um, it was just like, it, but it was story after story after story. And I was like, you know, they are actually telling proper stories that have a beginning, a middle and an end. And that, that way of sort of putting across something that's actually happened into a song is something else. It really is because that's the songs that somebody will come up and say, oh, I feel like you've written that about me. You know, one of the, song, the the title track on the album, Yours I, 
completely came from all my grandpa's letters home during the war. And reading through the letters, it was like there's not that much to write about, you know, as a as a whole song. But because I did know, like it would have been harder if I didn't know my grandpa well. But I did know him well, I knew his personality. And so, and we talked a lot about that time. So having that and in the letters, I was like, okay, there's the song, you know. And it's got, you know, that beginning, it starts Dear Mother, and at the end, um, it ends Yours I, which is obviously, you know, yours always. So it's like, I really am a big believer in storytelling and songs, and now that's all I do. I, I won't write a song now that's not about something that's true, you know. And it must be so cathartic, I think. You know, I write I write some poetry, um, and it always stems from a place of, like, a personal experience or something that, you know, that sparks you know, basically putting pen to paper or typing in my phone. And where it goes, I'm never quite sure where it's going to land, but it always yeah. comes from a place of, like, a personal experience. I guess for you then that's a cathartic experience because you're, like, processing something that's happened to you or it's happened yeah. to somebody you know. Or Is there a bit of, like, trepidation or, like, vulnerability in sharing that personal side? Massively. It's, it's And in this album particularly, I was really nervous about it. And... It was hard because it was all done through lockdown and so then I had the album finished, you know, it was all recorded, mixed, mastered, then pressed and I'm sitting with this album of, you know, t- telling things that were like the most personal and the biggest things that have ever happened to me in my entire life were all in this album. I actually sat there terrified thinking, I'm putting this out there and especially um, the album launch a couple of weeks ago. It was the first time going out there and performing this album, bringing it to life on stage, you know, the musicians that played on it. And it was actually really terrifying, all these different moments on it. And, 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 you know, between, like, really big loss of a family member, there's going through IVF, then having a kid and being terrified, and then what happens to your relationship once you have a kid with your new partner, all this kind of stuff. And... It was those wee moments, you know, even during pregnancy where I thought, you know, there's a particular song someday. And the first verse of that song is us waiting to find out if the IVF had worked. And then the second verse is what happened. It was literally just after we told, we got to the 12-week mark, told our families that we were having a baby. And then there was that fear of having a miscarriage that happened. And it was like, so the second verse is that day, you know, and... You could listen to the song and think maybe it's a love song because it's not, it's, you know, try to not make it, like, really blatantly obvious. I know exactly what it's about. And usually, you know, at, at gigs, I will always tell a story of what something's about. Mm. You know, I usually try to make it a funny story. But for that one, there's no funny way to put that. It's a pure roller coaster of emotions. Yeah. And then, I don't know, so it's the most, definitely the most personal album and of all these things that happen to you, you're sharing that with with people. But there, there are people that are there and they're, they're on side, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But it's still scary. You feel a bit naked on stage when you're singing all these things. You're just standing up there basically saying, this is what's happened to me in my life. What do you think? Yeah, bearing your soul. Like you said earlier on, like people coming up to you then and saying that they've related <laughs> to a song. And they'll obviously take their own interp- interpretation of it or they'll draw on a particular aspect of a particular song but it must be really nice for you then to go ah well that's why I do this because it's that connection with with other humans yeah absolutely spot on because sometimes I feel like the more personal the song the more somebody will 
connect with it. Like um, this, this, the last song on the album wasn't actually meant to be there, but it was a kind of last minute song. It's called Little Red Car. And it was about the last kind of few days that I spent with my gran. And my mum and I were caring for her. And we knew that it was kind of inevitable what was going to happen in the next few days. And it got to a point where my gran was like sleeping down the stairs. And it, all of those wee moments are in the song. And like she literally, we stayed up, my mum and I stayed up all night with her. And I was like holding on to her feet. And my, my gran's wee friend said, you know, you'll feel when it's happening. She was a nurse and she's like, you'll feel the change in temperature and just, you know, sit with her and stuff like that. And my grandma was just like, you know, like lying there and I was kind of holding on to her feet the whole night and and then I'd be like, oh, you know, like like terrified. So then the next day my mum and I were really tired and I said to mum, you go for a wee sleep. And then the second my mum woke up, come down into the living room, that's when it happened. And I, I was like, that has to be in the song, you know, because it says in the song, you know, I know you waited just for mama coming down the stairs. And she did. And and all those things, but that song has like hit so many people that have you know like, and that song's so specific to to my grand situation. But you think you're never the only person that's been in that situation, and so people are you know coming up and they're like, oh, that song, you know, and it's like you're like, oh my god, it's it's so it feels so amazing. Not that people come up and go, oh, you made me cry, and I'm like, I'm really sorry, but I actually kind of like that, you know, because you know you've like hit them somewhere, and you think. That's what music should do. And I love when people come to gigs and they have a great laugh and they cry and then they have a laugh again and then they cry. Because I love, like, these usually funny stories in between of, of things that have happened. And I love sharing those stories with people and I love hearing people laugh because it's, like, it's the best feeling, especially, like, through the past couple of years that everyone's had. Writing, as you'll know, if you you know you write poetry and stuff like that, as it's therapy. You know, you sometimes they'll just do that. You ever done that like free association writing, where you just sit and then you don't really realise what you're writing. You look back at it and go, "What's wrong with me?" <laughs> it's funny. But I was listening to an interview with Marianne Keys, the writer, mm-hmm. and she was saying that she her writing isn't therapy. Like she goes to therapy so she can write. And I was like, oh, I wonder if that's like, you know, if other writers, whether they be, you know, authors or songwriters, um, I wonder if there's an even split in terms of like some people would do it for that, like catharsism, like they just need to get it out and that's their kind of mode, that's their medium, or whether they do it elsewhere in order to be able to put pen to paper and to share their work with the world. I think sometimes people are like authors and things like that where you know, they write, say, they write crime novels or they write this and they write that. You could see why they would need to go to therapy to kind of free up their mind to do that. Whereas I think when you write things like, like if you're maybe like an artist, you know, like a painter or a songwriter or a poet or whatever, that is the therapy. You know, you know, like therapists have therapy. They have yes. to, you know, that I think maybe certain types of writers maybe need that. I've had loads of therapy, but I don't know if it, maybe, you know, maybe actually, I mean, now that I think about it, like the previous album came after like a good couple of years of therapy and freed up, there's a lot of kind of nostalgic stuff in it, you know, like going on family holidays when we were a kid and all that kind of stuff and growing up in a crazy house and things. So I suppose I can see that, you know, that it kind of processes things in your mind and then you're all of a sudden able to sort of put these into different songs or whatever it is, you know. Everyone's mind's different. Some are more warped than others. 
very true. That's what makes the world so colourful. It would be very boring place if we're all the same. It'd be terrible, wouldn't it? It really would. Well, I often think of the terrible place if they were all like me, pure stressing about the minutia. I'm like, thank God, no, everybody's as highly strong as I am. <laughs> but just um, listening to your music and now getting to know you a bit more and understanding, you know, the importance of connection, the importance of storytelling, the importance of being able to be like honest about you and your life and yourself and and that's a journey do you know what i mean that's a process what was the inspiration or what was the impetus to even pursue music even just as an interest as a hobby how long have you got all the time in the world um i think for me i was a really kind of quite a kind of introverted very shy kid um, I got a guitar. I didn't ask for a guitar, but I got a guitar for my Christmas when I was nine, and I loved it. I was like, I was quite obsessive with it, and I found that if I liked something, I would become. I wanted. I always wanted to be the best if I had something. So when I got a guitar, I was like, oh, focus, focus, focus. I was just playing and playing and playing. So by the time I was like ten, I was like proper like Chet Atkins finger picking and stuff like that. Watched loads of videos of it. He was like my hero, still is of you know guitarists um but it was always country music that was in our house well you know like a lot of houses there's abba and buddy holly and stones and the beatles and stuff but country music was really the kind of main music that was played in the house and i absolutely loved it you know i loved patsy klein dolly part and johnny cash all the greats and so that was what i was like really loving playing and what i found was i don't read music so i've not really got the sort of focus attention for that but I could hear a song and then in my head I knew how to play it you know to so doing that on the guitar and then I think my parents were so worried that I would maybe at one point go off the rails they just kept buying me instruments so <laughs> next Christmas it was like then I got a banjo then I got a mandolin then I got like a keyboard then I got an auto harp and I was like you know, and I just had this room, this room full of X Files posters. Just opening the door and chucking stuff in at you. But then it got to a point where my mum's like, "Pay, you're not going to go and hang about the streets or something like that, or like with friends and people, you know." And do you have any friends? And I was like, "What any friends for? I've got a banjo." Um, <laughs> I think they did worry. I think that, like, my mum started worrying I was going to be like a serial killer or something because I didn't leave my room. They'd even just bring my dinner up and put it at the door. They called me Howard Hughes. They like knock the door and go, there's your dinner. But thank you very much. <laughs> the muso closing the door. I was so, that's that, like I was songwriting from maybe about 11 or 12. I wouldn't sing. I get my sister to sing songs and she is terrible. Um, <laughs> it's really bad, still is. But um, I think like I was just too shy and then I was like, oh, I can't stand being around. I need to start singing myself. But really shy and it was torture and then I caught myself what I kind of saw as a bit of an apprenticeship playing in a country band but I was too young to be doing all these line dancing clubs so I just had to pretend I was older I wasn't feeling empty I was like a wee like podgy baby faced teenager you know with bad skin and a perm <laughs> and I like started sh- like shaving my eyebrows I think that was a good idea to learn now that like, you know now that I'm 40 odds they just don't grow in anymore. These are the choices you make. You know, like, I, I don't know. I just, so I did that, you know, for a while, doing all the pubs and clubs. And I think that gave me a bit of confidence to sing and perform. And actually, it was good for 
um, you know, you've played three hours a night. I mean, that's talking all these smoky clubs. I was only like 16 at the time, but I was making more money then than I probably do now. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the days. I used to sell guns, knives and guitars. um, And that is actually true. Um, But yeah, I think I got a bit of confidence doing that because, you know, you dealt with the hecklers and the drunk people and stuff like that. So you kind of started getting like, I was, you know, just, I was a kid, but I started getting this wee stage presence where I was like, you know, at first if somebody said something, I'd, I'd get maybe a bit hurt because somebody went, you're shit. There's always one. <laughs> yeah, but now if somebody did that, that nothing bothers me on stage, right? But I love being the person with the microphone because the people will be so sorry they ever said anything. And I remember my mum saying one time, you know, Pet, I was bursting through that whole gig, but I didn't dare get up. <laughs> Especially if it's your mammy. You're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and I was listening, I was listening to an interview with Brian Adams today and he was saying that there was this woman at one of his gigs in the front row and she sat with her phone like the whole time just on her phone. He was like, she looked like she was having a nice time but she didn't actually like look at me. She was just on her phone and he put her up in front of 10,000 people. He was like, I didn't get the camera to go on her but I did say, come on, like put the phone down, be present. I was like, oh my God, how mortified would you be? See, do you know what I'd have done? If I was Brian, I'd have gone down and taken her phone to actually see what she was doing. I'd have taken it off her and I'd have made her really sorry. Not even have brought her up on stage. I toured with Brian Adams, actually. Shut the front door. I was going to marry Brian Adams. Really? Yeah, I just didn't know about it. Yeah, I was a huge Brian Adams fan growing up. Yeah, it was during the Speedway days. That was actually, that was our kind of farewell tour just after we got dropped. We got offered the Brian Adams tour under the full arena tour all around the UK and Ireland and stuff. It was good. No way. Yeah, I'll, yeah, big, big Brian fan growing up. It was brilliant. It was like, it was one of these things because like my dad's a massive Brian Adams fan and I actually didn't realise that the first night I like watched his set, just from the side of the stage, it was brilliant. Um, I watched his set and I like knew every word to every song and I'm like, what's happening? I was like, I knew literally everyone. Me and my mum went to see him in Edinburgh Playhouse when I was a teenager. And it was like, he'd just done the song with Mel C. And he was like, can I get somebody up on stage to sing? Right. I said to him, listen, Brian, if you want me to sing the Mel C part, it's fine. But he's like, oh, I always get somebody up to do it. And I was like, well, just one night on the tour. If one night would be a good idea. Somebody can actually sing the harmony line. And knows the words, and we were so high up in the playhouse that he looked up and he went, "You're too high." <gasps> and he picked the girl that was in the front. She didn't even know the words. She didn't even know the words, Jill. Uh, yeah, but I got a plectrum because my mum. We went to stage door. I remember, and he's like tour manager or somebody took a wee shining from my mum and took her away inside <laughs> and for to look for his bread and butter pudding, and then they came back out, and I got a plectrum. Well. Um, when they do the thing of picking the girl at the audience, they already know who they're going to pick. That's even worse because she really didn't even know the words. And I thought out of 30 dates he might have said, Any never? You come up, has it? Brian, what are you doing? So you're talking about those days when you were with Speedway. Like it, yeah. in terms of like that time, yeah. that world, does that feel totally a world away from what you're doing now or does that feel like it's just always been like a natural progression towards what you're doing now? It's a kind of strange one because when I had the whole like Speedway experience, which was probably about five years in total, um, it was never music that I loved, but I loved the experience I had with them, if you know what I mean. So the excitement of getting signed. When I got signed, I was a nursery nurse. I worked in a wee baby room. 
um, and I had to leave behind all my babies to go off to London and sign this big record deal and it was all a big deal and everything like that and then I was just getting like jetted all over the world to, to go on writing trips and things like that it was me and the drummer Jim because it was just us that were signed um, and like the other two guys in the band were brought in as like session musicians but we got to tour everywhere and we got to like you know we were kind of hanging around like Debbie Harry and all that kind of stuff got to go to the EMI Christmas party and sit, I was sitting in between Ronnie Wood and Mick Jagger like that. I was like, where's Keith? And then they're slagging me for having an Iron Maiden t-shirt on. And I was like, and you know what? I've got a really old Nokia that I've still got the picture of, like me and the guys. And then they asked me to go to Spearmint Rhino with them. Like, it was the strip club, whatever. But I was doing like really early Saturday Top of the Pops the next day. And I was like, oh, I can. I've got like a hair and makeup call at four o'clock. Went back to see the boys in the band and they were like, right, what were they saying to you? Like, what, like, 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 what was Mick saying? I was like, he smelled lovely. He smelled really nice. They were really nice. And he's like, but what did they say? I was like, they asked me to go to Spearmint Rhino. They're like, oh my God. And I was like, I said, no. We've got Saturday Top of the Pops tomorrow. I was like, I'm the one that gets the hair and makeup call at four o'clock in the morning. And they're like, you are a lunatic. <laughs> absolutely raging that I'd said and I was like oh right, I suppose I should have said yes you're like I'm just a consummate professional here but you know I got to do like loads of things loads of TV things like do you remember CD UK with uh, and yes. that was my first ever TV performance and I still have it and I am like a rabbit in the headlights but it's just amazing like just like you're saying to have all those mad experiences and meet all these people and yeah. and just be doing something that you love like you by this point I'm assuming that coming from the shy young person who won't come out the room and won't even sing your own songs to then getting the confidence to join that band and gig you know in the smoky filled clubs and pubs at this point now you know you're you just love music clearly you know you're immersed in yeah. it you're all consumed by it and you're just doing what you love to do I think, see, in Speedway, I think, if I'm like, brutally honest, and not, it's not something I've really talked about, is that I kind of created this a bit of this kind of persona that wasn't really me. I had to be this cool rock chick with my electric guitar down low, where actually I love playing my acoustic up really high and doing, you know, music that I love, where I was having to be this, like, you know, rock chick and whatever. But, um, I mean, we got to do so much in Speedway that I can never regret that time or say, oh, I didn't love it or whatever, because it was amazing. Got to do Top of the Pops, and that's something that most of the people around me don't get to say. So I've got to be thankful for all of that and all the experience, and it was just, it was amazing. Because nowadays, getting signed to a major label's like impossible, the way that labels are now, and you're getting all that sort of TV coverage and doing like really big kind of radio tours, all that kind of stuff, and doing the big festivals. It's just, it's impossible, you know? And But I love what I'm doing now more than ever. You know, I loved like two weeks ago playing to, you know, a few hundred people doing music that I absolutely love and having an audience there that's, I feel like they're mine, you know what I mean? It's like you feel like you've got like that kind of wee ownership of like they, you know, and, and, and they enjoy the music and it, to me that's that's perfect. There's this you know, I love every single thing about that. And you know, I I love like at the end of the gig I love going out and people coming up and chatting to you and stuff like that. It's 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 so nice and that rather than party in the park to a hundred thousand people where I can't chat yeah. like to them. <laughs> That's it, and it all has its place, I guess. You're trying on different hats. Like, I think we can all see, like, we think about things that we've done in the past or whatever, personas that we've maybe 
you know, it's like trying on, like I say, different hats. And you, you, you don't know unless you try it. And I, I guess you're at a place now where you're like, I now know what I definitely want and what I definitely don't want. But you had to go through that in order to understand yourself better. Plus, I think just obviously you mature and you get to know yourself better the older you get. You just It's just having the having the privilege of getting older to know absolutely. who you are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like I had to go through all these different wee parts of my life, like Speedway got dropped and then I went out to Nashville and then I went back out to Nashville again. I just loved it. I kept going out, <laughs> overstaying my welcome. Uh Stuck back to Faisley, so I didn't get deported. And then back out, you know. <laughs> and then I got a couple of different jobs. And then I was living in London, and I got offered like to get, go on tour with like with Lee Ryan playing guitar and do back and vocals for him, like in his band. And I thought, oh, you know what? Why not? I did two months in Italy, touring around with him and his band. And you know, like it was great musicians and big fancy tour bus, and the music was it was totally fine. It was like just good pop music you know and it was really enjoyable and then straight after that I got to go and play guitar and do back vocals for Natalie and Brulia and I did that for nearly a year she did her like the best of type thing and yeah. she released a single called Glorious and I, got, I mean I got to go to Paris I got to go to Russia and then actually back over to Russia to do a wee acoustic gig with her and stuff and you know doing lots of like cool tv and doing uh, uh, the Graham Norton show and guess who was on it I don't know if you're too young to remember Cagney and Lacey no way. actually this one's even better right we went to France to do this show called Talatata it's kind of like the French version of Jules Holland right oh yes sitting in like the dressing room um, and not not with Natalie she wouldn't sit with us and um, I can hear this singing coming from the kind of main filmy stage bit I was like oh wait a minute I know that voice I know that voice so I'm like, out and I'm like peeking through these wee doors and it's Annie Lennox just sitting at a piano just mucking about playing and I'm like oh my god this is just I just stood there watching her and then she walked out and said hi Annie you <laughs> nice to see you alright Annie <laughs> Annie Jeez, I just like all those wee moments they stuck in your head it sounds to me that you are somebody who goes with their gut, would I be right in saying that? I think now, I think it's taken me a long time. To, like, I would be the yes person. Yes to everything. I could not face saying no to, to somebody, saying no to anything. I'm a total people pleaser. I still really have a massive element of people pleasing in me, but I've kind of learned how to diplomatically say no because my time is valuable. I've got a toddler. You know, and like, you know, having a family, I've got a wife and a toddler and that, you know, that that's the main thing, you know, and like my, you know, my family around me, you've got your priorities, you know, but when it comes to work things, I know I'm not really in a position to sort of pick and choose and say, yeah, I'll do that, I'll not do that. Like, because financially you do, you know, a musician, especially the last two years have been, you're kind of thinking, but you still have to value yourself. Yeah. You've got that integrity there to know what suits you and your music and your 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 thing, what you're doing, what you're trying to achieve. I'm 43. If a festival comes to me and says, oh, can you come and play? We'll give you £150 and it's exposure. I'm too old for that. You know, I'm like, I don't, I don't need exposure for £150 because actually I'll be out of pocket. 
I'll just leave it. I'm not playing for free, you know. Yeah. I, I remember getting asked to do a gig and the woman sent me this big long email. But basically what she was saying was there was no fee and I was to pay my travel. Oh, the email I sent back was amazing. Do you know what I mean? Because would somebody go and work in an office for free? No. It's mental. Yeah, it's because, it's because you like your job that you should just want to turn up at the opening an envelope and, and, and you're like, and I'll, I'll pay to be here. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot of things even now, even after the way that the past couple of years has been where so many musicians are like, I don't know, like musicians that have lost their house, they've had to sell their houses, you know, and it's it's ruined them and luckily I'm in a position where you know my partner was able to support the three of us and but 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 what if we hadn't been in that position do you know what I mean it'd have been terrible well that's why when I meet so this podcast is a total hobby for me I just started it because I work in the arts and I was getting to meet lots of interesting people and I wanted to talk to more interesting people and I wanted to share that with the world but that is the first thing that I lead with when I email or message somebody about the podcast I'm like I don't have a budget to pay you so I'm sure you're inundated with unpaid requests but if you fancy a blather and you've got the time then I would be delighted because I know how precious people's time is do you know what I mean and, and it's just about yeah. being up front like there's there's no budget here because this is my hobby but hopefully if you want to do it we'll have a nice time and I'm very much just, I want to support good people doing good things. Yeah, with good intentions. You're not trying to do your podcast for you to make loads of money at a person's expense. You know what I mean? You see things like festivals, they have budgets. They'll pay the lighting staff, pay the stage crew, they'll pay the you know security, they'll pay catering. They'll pay for literally everything. And the last thing that they want to pay for is the acts that bring in the people. And that is my absolute... I was going to swear, but I'm not going to. No, no, and I totally understand. Uh, yeah, it must be just so frustrating. When you're doing an interview, it's like, you know, having a radio show or whatever. People, you know, I know I am, and through this album I've done lots of, sort of radio interviews and a few wee like uh, podcasts and things like that. And I'm always happy to do them because people are like, uh, you know, always would assume are genuinely interested in your music and what you're doing and things like that. And that's not something to me that you, like as a musician, you'd ever look for a fee for, do you know what I mean? Mm. There's other things when they want you to go and be doing what you do. Yeah. You don't live in fresh air. You're like, how do you pay your bills, pal? And that's the aspect, I guess, of the business that it's unavoidable. But I guess the love for what you do, you know, and the drive to to just want to keep doing it, it over overrides the kind of negative side of the stuff that yeah. you just need to. You still see people that, and you think like, yeah, I was like that as well. I was younger and I was a bit naive, and I would just do any gig that came up and think, well, yeah, all of it's publicity. But it, you know, it's not. It's exploitation and. Now I'm glad I'm in a position and have a manager that will say, Jill doesn't play for free. She also doesn't play for £100. <laughs> um, but I remember like with, like getting asked to do this gig and the woman's like, yeah, there's no fee, there's this and that, you can pay your travel. And I was like, all right, okay. And then I went into this big, massive 
rant about I've spent you know 20 odd years mastering what I do and and, I I, you know don't do that to walk out and play for free how insulting it was and then hit back at hard as she worked for free all this kind of stuff and I said so if you actually want me to do the gig it's a thousand pounds for a one hour set which usually is longer than that because I talk too much and then she came back and went oh you know I, I could maybe stretch at the very most to um, 800 and I was like ah fine I'd have done it for four but um, anyway what fool you <laughs> but, yeah. people are funny and in terms of your um, creative process has that changed from the, the days of being in your bedroom and getting your dinner delivered to the door to now where you are now are you still writing songs the way that you always wrote them in a way it has always been the same and that I never sit down to write a song. I can't really work like that because I've not got a great attention span. Um, I mean, it's a big deal that I've been sitting here for this length of time, to be honest. <laughs> well, I very much appreciate it. You know, I just like pour about tidy up the pantry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to mention you did sit strategically in front of your pantry, but I was, I, I mean, I was already impressed you had a pantry. You informed me that it's not tidy enough for your liking. It's not. It's been rummaged around him by a wee toddler trying to find sweets. But, um, yeah, what happens with me is that, like, songs kind of form in my head first and I kind of have to let that happen. So, like, like melody, it's like it's all in wee bits and it's it's floating and then piece by piece it'll actually come together. And then once it's like that, then I can sit down and write it. And usually that process would be, I don't know, it can be half an hour, it can be an hour or whatever, but then that, that'd be the full song. And then I kind of just refine it after that. But I do have to let that process happen in my head because it would drive me crazy. Otherwise, if, if, if I started do, trying to do that too soon, it wouldn't work. You know, I find if you, you spend too much time trying to like battle with a song, I just scrap it. Can't I can't do that. But like the one, like Yours Eye in particular, the first line it was in my head, like dear mother I'm a little frightened out here and then as soon as that was in my head it was like oh right like and the whole song came out so frighten itself it's like it does because half the ones I don't like really even remember the actual writing process I know like there's a song there I'm called Baby Chicken about like we'd kind of had the chat of like I really want to have kids do you want to have kids and it's like yeah that was actually the first song written for the album um ages and ages and ages ago before even actually come through any process or anything like that. It was just a chat that happened of you'd like to, because I'd, I'd, like, my whole entire life always wanted to have a family. Yeah, we chatted about having a family, and then I was, like, kind of, like, bouncing about, like, really happy because we'd made that decision of, right, okay, we'll do it. At some point, we'll do it. And I'm thinking, well, I'm, you know, pushing 40. This has to happen soon. <laughs> um, and I just literally walked from one room to the next, and in my head, I was like, one baby chicken in the bedroom. And I was like, that better not already be a song. Better not already be a song. <laughs> oh, my God. 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 Something to write. Something to write. And I was like, like, you know, and it's like, then that chorus was there. And as soon as the chorus was there, the verses just like happened on their own within like. That's mad. Uh, it was actually like walking from one room to the next. It was like weird. But I do love that that happens because it's such an exciting feeling. And then once it's finished, you kind of think, is this shit? <laughs> You never know, do you know what I mean? You never know till you play it to somebody, which is mm. a really weird thing to do, is just to go, I've got this new song, can I play it? 
you know, and my other half's very honest and I, I need that, you know, there's no point in somebody going, that's brilliant, that's brilliant, that's brilliant, you know, my family are brutally honest, it's amazing. My mum actually phoned me, now it was six months ago, and because I'd sent my dad the, the masters of the album and I was like, you know, let me know what you think. And he sent me a message. He's like, it's absolutely brilliant. I love it. it. Sounds amazing. The band sound great. The songs are great. You know, really proud of you. And I was like, well, that's a bit nice for you. Usually I get a cool enough thumb, you know, thumbs up. The smiley face and the cowboy hat. It's like, hey. <laughs> like all right, that's quite nice. Uh, that's been very bit emotional. But anyway, so my mum phoned me and she's like, hi, pet. And I was like, hi, and she's like, just want to tell you that that album is the best yet. Every single song is amazing. I'm so proud of you. It's just brilliant. I mean, every song, every two's going on like that. And I was like, that's really nice. And it really is the best yet. Then I was up at the house about a week later and my dad went, ask your mum if she's actually heard the album. And I was like, but she's not listened to it. And he went, she's not. She's not even heard it. And I was like... Okay, so I filmed, like, I kind of secretly filmed her. I was like, so you like the album, Mum? She went, oh, it is the best yet, Pet. I love it. I really love it. I was like, what's your favourite song on it? She went, eh, eh, I is no one. And I was like, do you mean yours, I? Yeah, that one, uh I love it, love it. And I was like, Mum, have you actually listened to the album? And she went into this almighty motley fit of hysterics. (laughs) <laughs> I have it. I've listened to it. I promise you, I've listened to it. That's not a liar. She's like, Your nose is getting longer. <laughs> she listened to it on. She went, in the car, CD player. And I went, you don't have it on CD. So you're lying. She went, your dad let me hear it on the computer. I was like, no, you didn't. <laughs> she knew it was brilliant. She didn't even need to listen to it. Oh, what a bitch. Uh, but no. <laughs> She eventually did, and she's like, yeah, I've listened to it now, Pet. It's really good. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you for making that space in your life, mother. <laughs> well, this is a thing. You know, and that, I mean, I'm assuming that you've always had their backing in that sense. Like, and, you know, that must be amazing to have that. You're, you're talking about that close knit circle of family and friends that are yeah. totally behind you and your partner. You know, you're talking about them being so supportive. Like, that's huge, eh? like because you are doing this thing that you love and you're all in it. And I guess sometimes like the blinkers are on and you've just got your eye on the prize, whatever that is. Yeah, it's nice to have the support without without intrusion, if you know what I mean. You know, I've never had like really pushy parents or anything like that. It just always kind of left me to it. And I think, you know, now, now it's a bit different. But, you know, back in the day, I was, I was never home. And I think that maybe... I want a, a wee bit of resentment from my mum that she just never saw me, whereas my dad was a bit more like, you know, off doing what she loved because I'd go to America. Like, I remember I was going to America to do this. So I sang a guy from Nashville that I know, and him and I went out and did 50 states in 50 days. We did a gig in every state. Oh. A gig a day in every state, right? It was, oh my God, it was killer. I did think it was going to die. And I had kind of knocked back doing the Kylie tour to do this one. They were kind of both sitting there. The Kylie tour was going to be very, I mean, it'd be like, you know, the fancy big tour bus, a costume, probably not really playing, not my thing at all, but probably a great experience, or I could slum it around America in a pickup truck. 
that's obviously where your gut went then, you know, because you're yeah. like, yeah, the Kylie thing would have been an experience, but it's about the, yeah, the music. Yeah, kind of experience where I thought of going like all around America and I made great friends, not really friends with him anymore, but because you can't do a tour like that and then still be pals with somebody at the end of it. He's lucky I didn't smother him in his sleep. <laughs> but like I did a gig in try to think what it was. It was like maybe been Seattle, and then this guy came up to me and said, "Would you like to come and teach at my music camp?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's great." You never think if anyone's going to come out of that. And then because of that, he actually runs a guitar camp that I go and teach at in Alaska. So I get to go out to Alaska. I've been out like four or five times now, teach at this lakeside camps, an adults camp. So teaching like fingerstyle guitar, songwriting, and stuff like that. Just for like a week, and, you know. That's awesome. How, how do I get paid for this? Do you know what I mean? This is like, it's just like a dream, you know. And doing like just doing some gigs and stuff. And then the last time I was going out to do the camp was 2016, and I said to my pal Joe before we go to Alaska because he lives in Kansas City, and before we go to Alaska, do you fancy hiking the Grand Canyon with me? I basically watched that Reese Witherspoon film Wild. And then thought, I'm going to do that Pacific Crest Trail. And then I thought, it takes like two months or something. I thought, fuck that, I know. I'll just do the Grand Canyon, right? So I bought this book called The Grand Canyon Companion, which was the extent of training that I did for hiking the Grand Canyon, right? Not like I just bought hiking boots, put red laces in them, bought a big backpack, you know, and took the essentials. <laughs> like bought a one-man tent. I, like, but basically... When we got there, I did a gig in Vegas, and then after the Vegas gig, we drove to the Grand Canyon. And he said, he was like, what What do you want to do this for? I was like, because I need it in my life. I need something, you know. And I said, I want a challenge. And he's like, you've been training. He didn't know that just before that I'd been to the doctors, being told I needed two new hips. But I was too young for them, and I was going to be coming back from Alaska to get in this really big surgery on both my hips that – kind of buys me maybe like 15, 20 years before I need the new hips, like bilateral hip dysplasia, right? So I don't know why I've got something that dogs get a lot, you know. But anyway, like years and years of hip pain and the doctor, the surgeon said just before I went, he said, right, so this is when you're having surgery. Don't do anything that would make it worse. No. And I said, well, I'm going to go and hike the Grand Canyon. And he said, you're a funny lady. Oh, my God. If I didn't need new hips before I did the Grand Canyon. But it was mental, right? It was so cool. I think the best way to see the Grand Canyon is to hike into it, right? And it's like under it's like one of the top five deadliest hikes in the world. My mum said to me, Is there a fence around the path? And I was like, Well, it's the fucking Grand Canyon. I'm not going to like a field and kill my comb. Do you know what I mean? It's like, why would there be a fence around it? She said, So what if you fall in? And I was like, Well, that was the last I need to worry about it, won't it? But I did not realise how bad it was going to be. I, I genuinely thought I was going to die because you get no phone signal. It's like 140 degrees in the shade. I lost my pal Joe within about five minutes. And it was like, it was crazy. It was like, I don't know how many miles down it was, but the, the hike back up, like on the way down, I was doing these wee videos going, this is amazing, look at this. This is the best view ever. This is great. And on the way back, I was like, I don't know what I was thinking. I think I'm going to die. I think I need a helicopter to come and get me. <laughs> my legs. <laughs> what position? I don't know. But see, even at, like to sleep at night, right? You're in this wee like one man tent. It's just like a coffin. 
and the heat and it's like open you open up an oven and everything gets dead hot and you're like it's really hot right that's what opening the tent was like so you're not selling this i was lying in this tent with animals running over it and i was like no no no, what's that what's that what's that so it's like you had to look for snakes scorpions mountain lions and fucking squirrels (laughs) they were absolutely the worst I mean, it makes for a great story on a podcast, but it sounds absolutely horrendous. But you know what, right? I took this picture, and it's at a wee place called the Ooh Point, right? And it was amazing. So there's a wee wooden sign that says the Ooh Point, right? and you look out, and I have never seen it. You just burst out crying. It's so incredibly beautiful, right? And it's so silent. And I actually, that part of it was amazing. You know, walking for hours and hours and hours with just your own thoughts, like... It, it was incredible and the challenge of walking back up you know and like I saw like, a wee family of deer you know and all that kind of stuff and you're just like it almost felt like a, a, you're in a bit of a dream state or something you know especially when you're crying for your mum halfway back up you know <laughs> yeah it sounds a bit of like a kind of pilgrimage or something it was like it was it was crazy but it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen like the most incredible experience but why I thought of doing it I don't know yeah, I like how the spot was called Ooh Ah. That feels like very apt for a singer. Yeah, what Gina G. Um, I took a picture, right? And then I was kind of Googling like people that had hiked it and stuff like that. And that same photo came up that I had taken. It was like really, really similar photo. And I was like, oh. And the, type, the, the thing was, and I'm glad I didn't read it before, that like a 34-year-old woman had fallen just after taking, that was the last picture she took. Basically, People go on these mule rides down into the canyon. But the path is is not white. The path is like a, a dirt dirt path that's just winding down, you know, like a switchback trail type thing. So when the mules come to you, you've literally got to put your back against kind of the canyon and let the mules go past. And they are within centimetres of falling off yeah. with people on them. And so you've really got to be careful. And I, I remember at first on the way down, my legs were really coming away from me because the drop down is thousands and thousands of feet. You know, it's I didn't realise that. And the older I'm getting, the more funny heights I'm getting. But when I read that, the woman had literally taken that same photo and then lost her footing after the mules passed her. And she literally just fell over her own feet. She didn't trip over anything, just her own feet fell in. So, oh my God, glad that wasn't me. And now that you're a parent... I wouldn't do it again. Well, this is what I was wondering. I'm like, is there a point where you're like, I was mental, like my friend, like she's jumped out of airplanes and all that, and now she's a parent, she's like, no way would I do all that stuff now. I would absolutely take him to the Grand Canyon and I would love us to do the mile in, mile out. That's easy. Anyone can walk a mile in, a mile out. That's, you know, that's all the tourists do that. I would not take him on a hike all the way in and all the way out. But your sense of adventure and going after what, you want in life that surely is something that you're going to pass on to your wee one yeah I mean like we have loads of trips planned with him and uh, you know and I think like he's already been in two tours with me he came on the uh, two tours of Ireland that the Eddie Reader tour when he was only about seven months two weeks after coming back from that tour with him we went into the first lockdown um and then the first tour that I did after the whole kind of 
COVID lockdown thing was another tour of Ireland with Eddie Reader. Funnily enough, I got asked to tour wow. again. So that was amazing. Buddy's her first tour baby. So she was so delighted that he was out on tour again. And, you know, he loves yeah. it. He's coming into the venues. He hates my singing. He does. If I sing even at all, he's like, oh, maybe that's bad. Mommy, he's not even three yet. Oh, that's bad. Don't sing that's bad. No, I'm like, okay. <laughs> <Harshest> critics. <laughs> Please don't sing. Um, but yeah, so you got to come out on the tour there. Uh, I've just finished another couple of weeks in Ireland. I'm doing a full UK tour with her as well, all through September and October, but they can't come on that tour, so I'm just trying to figure it out. So it's because I get real separation anxiety, even when he's up in bed. It's really sad. But um, yeah, so that'll be my first kind of tour, me on my own, you know. So, but that's just the life. But yeah, he'll get to come over to America and experience all of that. And I think that's that's great. He'll be a wee adventurer because my partner and I are both like that. We love traveling. We love experiencing new places. And <clears throat> we actually had a big trip to go to, like we booked our flights to California. We're going to be going to Alaska for the week and they were allowed to come with me and just stay at the camp and then do the two weeks in California just doing like, like sort of national parks and all that kind of stuff, seeing, you know, all the biggest trees in the world and things. Um, and just a week after we'd booked the flights and everything, the Eddie Reader tour came in and I, I had to do it. The tours that she does are amazing. I love touring with her. She's an incredible person and incredible to watch. I just love watching her every night. The band are great. And the venues are beautiful. She's got lovely fans. And it was like, I'd be crazy to not do that. It's the dream, yeah. America next year. <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah um so i've got a busy year ahead which is good to go from nothing to loads is amazing i was just going to ask that because i'm knowing how difficult the lockdown was or several lockdowns were for for everybody but working in the arts and the performing arts and your thing is to go out and perform to lots of people and just be with people you know even if you're not performing it's collaborating with other musicians and stuff and then it felt like just overnight that was like and no we can't do that and all the things that are in the diary are not happening it was like somebody just like pulling the carpet out from under your feet wasn't it it was really hard and it was really heartbreaking and it did kind of infuriate me seeing all these people saying save this venue save this venue save this theater and it's like no why would you save bricks when you really need to help the actual people that would be on those stages whether they are actors, dancers, musicians, whatever. You know, it was like, I felt like in all of that that happened, the arts were the kind of worst hit. But it was the one thing that people turned to straight away. Everybody was oh, watching yeah. films and everybody was listening to music. And, do you know what I mean? Like, that's what everyone turned to that. I mean, they're having this discussion in Parliament and it's like, well, on your way home, do you listen to the radio? On your way home, do you listen to music? When you get in at night, do you watch films? Do you watch documentaries? Do you watch TV series? Because you wouldn't have all those things, you know, but you don't want to help by putting all your money into the arts. It's the, it's the one thing that gets forgotten about and it drives me absolutely crazy. There's opportunities to give more help to musicians and actors and dancers and, you know, writers and everything. There was, there was so many opportunities to help. And it just wasn't there. And we won't forget it. It's And it's so hard that we're all just, like, you know, clambering our way back up. Yeah, and like you say, you know, people that are, are not going to be able to 
go back to the thing that they love the most you know people that do have responsibilities they have families it's they're having to make a choice and that's really upsetting there's people who just lost faith in it or they lost mm. the nerve you know and the people just like the thought of going back to it was was too much you know underestimating people's mental state especially you know people that are in the arts because it's almost like a different breed you know and the way that it hit people mentally going into a place where they think I can't do that again I can't act again or I can't sing again I can't I don't have the nerve to do these these things again and I actually know loads of people not loads and loads of people but I do know people are really good at what they do and they're not doing it anymore what did it feel like to step out on stage the first time you were allowed to basically after all of all of that nightmare. Absolutely fucking terrifying. Because all I'd done was Zoom gigs, do you know what I mean? Like I'd done a few of them and a good thing about that is you're not packing up your gear and leaving <laughs> into the night and having to drive home. Just going to the <laughs> just going to the living room, get my dominoes. Um <laughs> Well there was one night actually I thought the gig was over, but I hadn't done the whole leave me because we're doing like Zoom gigs. I bought a load of gear. Because I really did think if people are going to buy tickets to come and see an online show, then it should sound good, it should look good. So I bought like some lights, nice microphone, all that kind of stuff. Got like a full setup for doing it. So mm. I did that. There was one night I thought the, the gig was over, and then I was like, oh, I was sitting, I was like, oh. is the Domino's here yet? But the first gig I did was terrifying. Like my nerves, like I had like a week of nerves, and that's a lot. Usually I just like wake up the day of the gig, get a bit nervous. Or if it's a, yes. like a tour, then I'm fine until about, you know, half an hour before going on stage and then I get that like wee adrenaline hit and the nerves and stuff. But yeah, it was terrifying because I was thinking, do I still remember how to do this? And then I walked out on stage and I was like, oh, yes, I do. And you have lots of exciting things ahead. Surely there's just like uh, that building momentum now. Absolutely. Um had to actually get cracking right in the next album i've got a lot of shows coming up a lot of like sort of solo shows or with a band festivals and things and then like i say i've got all of september and half of october is all eddie reader gigs all sort of one end to the other end of the uk um and then we'll be back to doing more jill jackson gigs in november and then yeah i've got stuff right into like summer next year so it's tremendous. It's just lovely to hear that people are busy and doing what they love to do and do what they do so well. Just and, and that people get to enjoy live music again. Like people get to be in a venue, seeing their faces as well. There's there's something so lovely about seeing people's faces watching live music again. It's just brilliant. It's so good that they're you know they're out there enjoying it. You can still see there's an element of caution. There's there's definitely this wee percentage of people that will buy tickets and then back out the last minute, and you can't blame them for that. You, you as an artist will probably be able to see that that kind of slight trepidation just with your fans that are desperate to see you live, but just for whatever reason are not quite ready to be in the room yet. Yeah, and they, they do. They, they comment saying, I'm so sorry, I'm desperate not to be there. It's like, maybe like maybe somebody, like their wife or husband or whatever, just a bit vulnerable and they don't want to not go with them and stuff like that. They're maybe too nervous to go on their own. And you've got to understand that like, a lot of my fan base are older. And so... I did know that that would happen, you know. So before, when I played like 500 people in Glasgow, now it's like, so just now it's like 300 and a half. I know that that'll, that'll I'll come back again. We'll build on that and we'll get bigger and bigger and bigger just as, as people become more confident. 
I have absolutely loved speaking to you. Oh, thank you. I've loved it too. It's been great. You are such a wonderful storyteller. We started talking, and we were literally starting this conversation about the fact that you were missing story time at bedtime, yeah. which I very much appreciate because after talking about all the sacrifices that you make to be in this business, uh, much appreciate that you gave up story time tonight. Uh, that is okay. Uh, I'm happy to miss one night's storytelling. I'll probably have to do double the books tomorrow. Jill Jackson, I have to ask you because this is a bit of a tradition on the Brown and the Brave. Because it's called the Brown and the Brave, mm-hmm. could you tell me your favourite Scots word or phrase? My favourite? That's a good one, actually. Scots word or phrase? I would say probably pure Pishendon when it's raining. In the whole 184 episodes of The Brown the Brave, I don't think anybody said that one. So you'll go into the Hall of Fame. I'm actually going to be in a Hall of Fame. I mean, if I had the wee stars or the wee discs or something, I'd, I'd make you one. I cannot thank you enough. It's been a total delight to meet you, albeit virtually. I am, I'm in the fan club. I'm, I'm here now. And anything I can do to support what you're doing, your music's just tremendous. You are, you're just a lovely human that totally like just glows you're just glowing over there and you're an excellent storyteller and I can understand why you do what you do so so brilliantly so I wish you all the best it was lovely to talk to you going to go and tidy the pantry now actually I, I'll be telling everybody about that she's just seen the nickier pantry but <laughs> like space is all the wrong way around <laughs> I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Bra and the Brave a podcast about people and their passions Join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests. Bye for now.